We are not going to be in Acts this morning. It is, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I wrestled whether we should stay in Acts or not because it is a tradition on this Sunday, Palm Sunday, to have a Palm Sunday message. And I've, over the last 18 years, every year, I've done a Palm Sunday message on Palm Sunday, and I thought about not doing so this Sunday. Um, and part of the reason why I wrestled with whether I wanted to do a message about Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday is because I've always struggled with Palm Sunday. And we're going to find out a little bit why. But I've always struggled with Palm Sunday, uh, what is at least what's traditionally called Palm Sunday. We'll get into that in just a second. Uh, but I decided I wanted to do a Palm Sunday message again this morning, so that's what we're going to do. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand and to respond to His truth. So let's pray. Lord, help us as we consider this text and consider this event in your life when you are here on earth. I pray that you will open our eyes to see the truth and challenge us and um, encourage us and do your work as you see fit in our lives uh, to bring you glory. And so Lord, I pray you will uh, be at work mightily in us. Thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. So the triumphal entry starts at what is called the triumphal entry, what is called Palm Sunday, the events of that day really in effect start on verse 28 of chapter 19. That's where we're going to start. But before I read the text, I just want to say a few things, if I may, as a precursor. I have always, Lois and Jim and I were talking about this briefly last, last Thursday when we were practicing for this morning's music, um, I've always struggled with, with what has been called Palm Sunday or Triumphal Entry Sunday, and there's a variety of other terms historically and traditionally that there's been for this Sunday. I've always struggled with it because I never found that what is typically talked about accurately reflects the true story or purpose for what took place. I always thought that it was all one-sided and not two-sided, number one. And number two, I always thought, like for example, we call it Palm Sunday. Any reason why they call it Palm Sunday? Because they had the palms, right? And they put them down before Jesus, right? But why do we call it Palm Sunday? Is it about palms? It's not even about palms. Why do we call it Palm Sunday? That doesn't make any sense. Why are we emphasizing palms? If I may, if I may just kind of preach on that for a second. It doesn't make any sense to me. It never has made sense to me. The palms are... If I use the term I use regularly when we preach, when we're going through the book of Acts, the palms are part of the what of the story. The color of the story, right? And haven't we mentioned that oftentimes what happens, we get caught up in the palms or the color and we don't get caught up in the story? Isn't that right? Isn't that what happens? Secondly, when we talk about it, it's oftentimes called Triumphal Entry Sunday. And as a matter of fact, in my scripture, uh, scripture, my translation, ESV, that's exactly what it's labeled. This section is labeled the Triumphal Entry. Does anybody have anything else labeled there? Everything has it labeled triumphal entry. It's pretty common. That, by the way, the, the statement triumphal entry, just a reminder, that's not inspired. That word is, those words are put in there by translators, just so you're aware, to help you see how the texts break down. Sometimes they're really good, sometimes not so good. The, the word triumphal entry even bothers me. And we're going to find out why as we work our way through the text. Because it really wasn't a triumphal entry, was it? It wasn't a triumphal entry. Not by any stretch of the imagination was it. 
And we're going to see that as we work our way through again. So I've always struggled with, what do we call this Sunday? What do we call, more importantly, the events that we find in this story? I mean, I, I can think of a number of things you could, you could call this. For example, you could call it the humble entry of the king, right? Is it a humble entry of the king into Jerusalem? It absolutely is. He comes lowly on a donkey, right? It's a, a humble entry of the king into Jerusalem. The Messianic king. You could call it the high water. I don't use that term positively. I use it negatively. You could call the, the passage the, the high water mark. of the self-deception of most of the followers of Jesus. Could you not? You really could. Because after this, they cease being followers, right? And they cry out five days later, crucify Him. This is like the high water mark. That's not a good thing. <laughs> high water is referencing what? A flood, Right? High watermark of self-deception among the people who at this point in time were still following Him. The following of these people is at a frantic level, isn't it? Or frenetic level, isn't it? It really is. But it's wrong. It's wrongly headed, wrongly focused, with wrong goals, wrong objectives, wrong hope for conclusions. I just don't see anywhere we could functionally, when we look at the text itself, come away saying, yeah, this is a triumphal entry of Jesus. <laughs> you know, the triumphal entry, part one, is being raised up on the tree. <laughs> triumphal entry, part two, is coming out of the tomb. Isn't it? And then you have the triumphal exit, which is the ascension, right? And then you're going to have triumphal entry three. Notice how I phrased that? We're going to have triumphal entry number three, which is what? When he comes back, right? We've got those three triumphal entries plus the triumphal exit. But the entering into Jerusalem doesn't seem to me like a triumphal entry by any stretch of the imagination. And it wouldn't make any sense to have Jesus respond the way he did in this text if it was a triumphal entry. With that in mind, let's read the text and then we can talk our way through it. Starting in verse 28 of Luke 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the, mid, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in, in front of you, where, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, you read the text, and even if you're just casually reading it, it's a pretty somber text. This is not a joyous text, is it? Nowhere in the text is it a joyous text. We, I remember as a kid growing up, Palm Sunday was always such an exciting day at church. You know, we always got our palms given to us. They always, wherever they got them from, they always had palms available. And we got our palms. And we waved our palms. And it came across to everyone, it seemed like, as this joyous thing that took place. Even as a kid, I never could understand why it was such a joyous thing when Jesus is weeping. Does that make sense? Why is this such a joyous thing? Jesus is weeping. Well, I've jumped ahead. We're going to jump back a little bit. We're going to jump all the way back to the very beginning. Because there's some things that come up in the text that make us go, what's this all about? There's some clues, in other words, in the text that tell us how the people are thinking. And it's important that we see it. And it's important that we move pre-verse 28 in order to see it. Jump back to verse 11. Now, all he's got around him now are his disciples and all his followers, which we don't know the size of the followers. It's a multitude, which means it's a lot of people that are following him currently, that are surrounding him currently. In verse 11, Luke records, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, so obviously this, what's happening here is happening in quick succession, 11 all the way through to uh, verse 44. They're nearing Jerusalem. And because, notice this next phrase, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was uh, to appear, when? Immediately. You get the sense in verse 11 that this franticness or the freneticness, the excitement is, is palpable, isn't it? It's there. They think we are on the cusp, as it were, of the kingdom of heaven coming in our midst right here. You sense that? They're excited. And Jesus does what? Does He give them a really cool and friendly and comfortable parable? An exciting parable? Quite to the contrary, first thing he tells them is basically um, they all hate him. But there's a couple servants that he gives money to and a few of them do really well with it, right? 
They make more. And one of them doesn't. One of them hides it, right? At the end of the parable, we're going to skip over the parable. I just described it. Um, as a result of him not doing what he should have done with, with the, what he had, it comes down to the bottom of verse 22. He said to him, that is, the owner and the king, says, wonder who he's referring to. Who do you think? Himself? He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and re reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? The idea is at least put it in the bank. And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. As he said to, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but, to, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and what? Slaughter them before me. Not exactly a pretty picture, is it? And notice, and they totally miss it. Every single one of them miss what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about the servants of his, is he not? Is he? Of course he is. He's talking about his servants. I'll explain to you a little bit later what, he, what they think he's talking about. But he's talking about his servants. And his servants, some of them are what? Doomed to be destroyed. And it's not just a couple, it's just about all of them. Who makes it out of this one? The one who got ten and produced ten more, or the one who got five and produced five more. How many is that? Two. Everybody else just hated him. These are just three samples that he picked to demonstrate in this parable the condemnation of the vast majority. Interesting, because you have a picture there of what? Remnant, right? You have the picture of the remnant. And it's there that we go into verse 28. Immediately after the parable's done, verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage, and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it to me, bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he told them. When they were untying it, the colt said, to, or the its owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? They said the Lord has need of it. And then it doesn't say anything else about, about the owner, does it? But what happens is, by the storyline, you have to recognize, did the owner of the colt let the disciples take the colt? Obviously so, because Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt, right? Now, do you find that the slightest bit bizarre? For example, you walk out of church, you go out into the parking lot, and there's somebody climbing into your car. And you say, uh, excuse me, why are you getting into my car? 
and the guy says to you, the Lord has need of it. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, oh, okay. That's cool. Here's the keys. Is that what you're going to say? No, you're going to call the cops. And you do what you can to stop him, won't you? I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? What doesn't make sense in that whole story? That you let him go with your blessing. But evidently what happened here, when the disciples said to the owner of the colt, the Lord has need of it, he let him go. He was fine with that. Why would that be? That's a really important question. Why would that be? Well, the answer to that is what we just read in verse 11. What we just read in verse 11, as a, even though the owner most likely wasn't there, it gives us the point. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There was an understanding in Jerusalem and the surrounding area and basically all of Judah, this understanding that maybe Jesus was the Messiah. Possibly Jesus was the Messiah. He certainly had been proclaiming that, hadn't he? Even though he was proclaiming it in more of a veiled way, right? It was definitely much more veiled than what we're going to see in just a little bit. But it, it, was, it was being proclaimed. He was making very, very messianic statements, and he was looking at various passages in the Old Testament and showing how he was that, right? He did it every step of the way. Again, more veiled than what's about to happen, but he did it. I read from Psalm 118. We're going to talk about that in a little bit because that's going to become really clear. But also in Zechariah, very intriguing what happens in Zechariah because in Zechariah the, the scriptures record Zechariah prophesies that the Messiah is going to come on what? A cult. That's what's prophesied. The, the longing for the Messiah is strong in, the, in Israel, in Judah, and the hope is being placed upon Jesus that maybe, just maybe, He's the Messiah. There have been a lot of other ones claiming to be, and they've always fallen flat. But none of them had the claims that Jesus had. And so when, when the disciples show up and make the declaration, the Lord has need of this cult. Any Jew that has a high expectation of the Messiah and thinking that perhaps Jesus is the one, when someone comes along asking for your cult for the Lord's sake, it would ring bells, wouldn't it? It would absolutely ring bells. This is for the Messiah. Maybe he actually is the Messiah. So do you think in that scenario, you think you'd let your cult go? You absolutely would. You absolutely would let it go. <clears throat> so they let it go. Jesus gets, uh, they bring the cult back to Jesus. The disciples put their cloaks on the, the uh, cult. Jesus gets on the cult. And they start riding into Jerusalem. You'll notice verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. 
which is very much what you would do for a coming king into your city. Maybe we should call it Coat Sunday. Cloak Sunday. There's a thought. Why, why palm? Why not cloak? They would lay their cloaks out on the road for the king to walk on. It was a sign of honor. It was a show of respect for the king. So they're clearly getting the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why they're doing this. At least the ones who are his followers. Really important we distinguish. This is the multitude that's following him. These are not necessarily the residents of Jerusalem. It's the ones following Jesus. They're laying their cloaks on the road, and he's walking over them with a the donkey. As he was drawing near, already on the way to Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So the disciples and the followers are, are starting to scream and yell, and they're excited about, it's interesting, about what? What they had seen. What do you think that's talking about? Yeah. It's talking about his miracles. They're still enthralled at this late date with all the things he's done. And that's what it says here. The mighty works that they had seen. That is, that they had seen him do. Yet what we know is the people saw the mighty works, but they missed, clearly missed, the purpose for those mighty miracles, right? Those mighty deeds, didn't they? Totally missed it. And remember, who is he talking about here? His followers and his disciples. And then verse 38, they actually say the things he's, that they're, or Luke records the things they're saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Stop on 38 for just a second. You, I hope, already recognize the statement, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord should sound very familiar to you in light of the passage I read to start the whole service off. It comes out of Psalm 118. A very messianic passage. And they are recognizing, and they knew that was a messianic passage. They knew. And so they took a very clear messianic passage and they began to proclaim the message of that passage by crying out again, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Interesting. They recognize. They're getting it, aren't they? They're getting it. It's the Messiah. Interesting, the second phrase that's given though in the text. Does it sound vaguely familiar to you in this verse, verse 38? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar at all? What? The shepherds outside Bethlehem. This is an echoing of what? Of the angel's declaration. Correct? About Jesus, the Messiah, being born. Could I just say, do you remember when I spoke on that passage a long time ago? This is a long time ago. And 
the shepherds, after they saw or heard and saw the angels and got the declaration, they said what? Let us go and see, right? And they went and saw Jesus, the baby, right? And what did they do afterwards? They went and proclaimed it everywhere, right? Now remember, Luke's not written when Jesus is what? Coming into the, trium- the triumphal entry into, Jesus, into Jerusalem, right? The book of Luke's not written yet. This isn't written until like 30 years later. So where did the people hear about that phrase? Most likely from who? 33 years later, earlier, they heard from the shepherds. Most likely they heard that from the shepherds. Isn't that interesting? Sounds like the shepherds had a pretty effective short-term ministry, didn't they? (laughs) The point is they're getting it, aren't they? They seem to be really getting it. This is the promised one. This is the Messiah. Blessed is the king. They use the king term, the kingdom terms. King who comes in the name of the Lord. Very clearly messianic. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Very much the declaration of the angels. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. (laughs) Why would they say that? Why do you think they would say that? They were against him, true. They were every step of the way, right? But they didn't believe that he was. That's why. They think, they, they think he's a heretic. They think that he's not the Messiah. He's, a, he's gaming people. And so they go to him and they say, they say, Master or teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus' response, and we've talked about this passage before, so I won't talk about it right now. He answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What becomes really interesting is what happens next. Because what did we just say? Every step of the way, we said what? They're starting to get it, right? They seem to be really getting it. Blessed is, is, is the one who came to the, comes in the name of the Lord. And they're thinking kingdom of heaven. And the only way the kingdom of heaven is coming is if the Messiah comes. So they're clearly thinking that it's, it's, it's just resonating with them. Verse 11. It's resonating with them. Powerfully so. Then why would verse 41 record that Jesus wept? Why would it do so? Why would Luke record that Jesus wept? And more importantly, why would Jesus weep? They're getting it, aren't they? They're getting it. He's the Messiah. But he weeps. It says in verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And notice what his first words are as he is weeping over Jerusalem. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Oh my goodness. He goes on saying, would, I'm sorry, goes on, um, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now is our first piece of data that's really absolutely essential. 
Did you hear the, the, the contrast? Verse, verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Contrast. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Wait a second. I thought they're getting it. They're finally realizing that He's the Messiah. And it's being proclaimed now louder and more clearly than ever, isn't it? He's coming in on a colt. Lowly on a colt. It's an absolute proclamation for the first time in biblically recorded story of Jesus' life on this earth. For the first time, the masses are starting to get that He actually is the Messiah. And He says what? Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. You know what that means? It means that in their getting it, they don't get it. In their getting it, they don't get it. That's what he said. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If you really got an understanding, a biblical understanding, he's saying to, to Jerusalem and to the Jews, if you really got a biblical understanding of what the Messiah is all about and what it means for the Messiah to be here, then you would understand what this is all about and you'd understand what makes for peace. Now why does he single out the word peace here though? That's the interesting thing. Why is he single out peace here? Because they think they've got figured out what makes for peace. See, their view about what makes for peace is if only they would be separated from the Roman government and the Roman rule. If only we would once again be an autonomous country with our own king. They haven't had a king for over 400 years. If only we were separated from the Roman government and we would have our own king and he's the what? The Messiah because the Old Testament promised he would rule with peace and that peace would be well, how long? Forever, if only we would have the Messiah come and be our king and set us free from the Roman Empire, then we will have peace. And Jesus says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What's Jesus saying? He's saying being set free from the Roman Empire does not make for peace. Because the real problem is not peace in this dumb little country in this backwater location. <laughs> the problem is not you and the Romans. The problem is you and God. And you, even though you study the Old Testament and study the Old Testament, you've memorized the law and you know it backwards and forwards, you totally missed your need. And you totally missed that the purpose for the Messiah was to deal with with the one thing that could never be dealt with by man, and that is your sin and the fall and the separation as a result. That is your only hope, and if only you would understand 
the things that make for peace on this day, everything really would change. But that's not what they're after, is it? They're after an earthly Messiah for an earthly kingdom. They're after everything but what Jesus came for. He, set that, he came to set people free from the only thing that ultimately creates chaos, and that's sin and Satan and his kingdom. And only then could there be peace between God and man. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But then the interesting thing is, and again, the next statement he makes, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You know, this shows up repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you Exhibit A. Not the first exhibit, but Exhibit A. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, Isaiah says, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the Lord. He knows he's doomed. And of course, then there's that whole thing about the coal on his lips and he's cleansed of his sin. Because that's the problem, isn't it? It's absolutely the problem. And then God says, who is going to go for us? And Isaiah says what? Here am I, send me. And, I, and God says to Isaiah, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the people and you're going to preach repentance and I'm going to do what? I'm going to blind their eyes so that they what? They cannot see so that I will destroy them. That's what he says. It's exactly what Luke records here. Oh, if only you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Horrifying statement, isn't it? That's an absolutely horrifying statement. In Matthew, it's recorded that they are also crying out, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. Save us now. That's what it means. And again, what are they crying out? Is that the truth? But Yes, but not the way they're thinking. They're not thinking saving from sin. They're thinking again, save from the Roman Empire. Save us now. Bring back our identity. And our identity is hung up with our country here on this earth, which is another word for kingdom on this earth, isn't it? What are the ramifications in this text for what's going on as Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem? Well, starting in verse 43, after he says in 42 that the, these things are hidden from their eyes. Verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone on, uh, upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. What a horrifying statement. Because you did not know 
the time of your visitation. That is the time of Jesus, the Messiah, coming. It sounds like they know, doesn't it? They're recognizing him as the Messiah. They're calling him the Messiah. They're recognizing that he may very well be bringing the kingdom. But it's all for the wrong reasons, wrong purposes, wrong goals. And so as a result, in knowing they don't know. Does that make sense? In knowing they do not know. And so they totally miss. Because they, don't, they miss the import and purpose for his visitation, they miss his visitation. Verse 44, verse 43 and verse 44, by the way, historically is referring to the Roman destruction of um, Jerusalem in 70 A.D. That's what it's referring to. It, actually, it happened about 40 years later, less than 40 years later, all of Jerusalem is leveled and destroyed. And then from there, everything else is destroyed as well. And Israel, or I'm sorry, Judah, Israel's already gone, but Judah ceases to exist until the 1900s when Israel is reestablished in, in uh, 1948. But um, it, was, it was absolutely decimated in 70 AD. So what's the, what's, what's the real value that we can drag out of this text? What's the real point of this text? Well, I think if we're going to listen to this text, what we need to listen to is the reality that the people thinking they got it didn't get it. Remember I said it's not really a triumphal entry. You get the sense now it's not really a triumphal entry? <laughs> it's not even close to a triumphal entry. The triumph doesn't take place for five more days, right? The triumph takes place at the crucifixion, not the entry. If anything, Christ is broken over what he sees. He's horrified by what he sees because he knows their hearts. This is not a triumphal entry. As I said before, it's a high-water mark of their, of their self-deception. They don't get it. So what do we do with this text then if it's not what we keep on saying it is? What do we do with this? Well, the only way we can understand what's going on here is if we, you and I, are careful that we don't fall into the same trap that they did. I would argue, if we want to talk about the entry into G of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on this day, 2,000 years ago, well, we need to get more than anything else because the implication of the text, and not just this text, but all throughout the Old Testament, we know it's true. The implication and clear teaching throughout the Scriptures, including the New Testament, is this. There are going to be a whole lot of people who think they got it figured out. There's a whole lot of people who will say, yes, come save us. Blessed is the King who's come in the name of the Lord. You know, there's going to be a whole lot of people like that. But in the end, there's only going to be what? Destruction. That's the point of the text. Do you realize that? That is the point of this text. There will be many that will say it. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? There will be many in that day that say, Lord, Lord, King. Right? Same idea. There will be many that say, Lord, Lord, and I will say what? Depart from Me. I never knew You. Many. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, you heard me talk about it ad nauseum. 
The Scriptures talk regularly about only a faithful remnant will be saved. This text screams that out. Here are people who after three years of Jesus' ministry are finally starting to understand that this guy is not just a guy who does cool things. Right? Amazing things. Miracles. This guy, Jesus, I think he's the Messiah. I think he's the one prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And so they begin to seemingly even worship, don't they? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Jesus says, all that's there for you is what? Destruction. It's shocking, isn't it? This text isn't triumphal. This is horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. Well, we get the sense of the danger, right? You get the sense of the danger here? But we don't really yet. We don't. I want to broaden that out because I, I think we need to look at the bigger context in order to really connect the dots here. We started in verse 28 and then we jumped back to verse 11 and talked about the parable, right? We need to jump back a little bit further. All the way to 10. We're going to go to 9. And Jesus said to him, today salvation, he's speaking to uh, um, um, Zacchaeus. Today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the, Notice verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Did you hear that? I'm going to read it again. For the Son of Man came, speaking of himself, to seek and save that which is lost. Or say you can save the lost. This text brings clarity to what has been called the triumphal entry. Because <clears throat> you know what the Jewish problem was? You know what the Jewish problem was in, in the Old Testament era? The Jewish problem was they didn't think they were that bad. You realize that? They minimized sinfulness and thought that self-righteousness would do what for them? Would help save them, right? They minimized their sin. When you minimize your sin, something inevitable happens. When you minimize your sin, you minimize the Gospel. And when you minimize your sin and therefore minimize your gos- the Gospel, you end up minimizing Christ. It's inevitable. You will compartmentalize Him. You will minimize Him. You will isolate Him. To safe places. Won't you? 
And when you do it, you also minimize <coughs> the idea that he saved you to something. Right? He didn't just save you from, he saved you to. But you see, if you minimize your sin, what happens is you minimize the gospel, which means you minimize Jesus, which, which means you're not being saved for much. So Christ doesn't need to be much. And the ultimate result is you're being saved to a Jesus that is kind of marginal. Because you marginalized him. Didn't you? Can't help it. It's a, it's a continuum. Whatever you do on the one, you do to all the rest of them. That's exactly what the Jews did. And so as a result, Jesus became not a Savior from their real problem. He became a Savior from their perceived problem. Didn't He? That's horrifying. Now, we sit here today and say, well, yeah, but we don't do that today. We talk about sin. Yeah, we talk about sin. <laughs> really? Serious? Let me ask you a couple questions. If I were to sit down with you, or if, you were, if someone else to sit down with you and ask you a simple question, tell me about your theology of sin. Tell me about, explain to me what sin is and the seriousness of sin and, and, and talk to me about everything you know about sin. Do you think you have much to say? Do you think you have much to say? Second question I would ask you to ask yourself. What's your response to sin? How do you respond to sin? You see, because it's really easy to say, no, we maximize sin. We, we don't want to minimize that because we understand that. We minimize sin, we minimize the gospel, and then we, we minimize Jesus. We don't want to do that. It's easy to say, but functionally speaking, what does it look like? What's our response to sin look like? I mean, do we ever find ourselves looking, looking even a little bit like, even a little bit like that tax collector who couldn't even look up to heaven and was beating his chest and crying out, God be merciful to me, a sinner? Do we even look that way? Do we even have an inkling of that look in our lives. I mean, that's a pretty stunning perspective, isn't it? And we look at it today and we say, man, that, that guy was really serious about it, wasn't he? Now, that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, I understand the holiness, the holiness of God and I understand, and I start to understand the sinfulness of man. It's by the Spirit, right? The ramification of that, I will find myself in a very different place than I am now. Right? It's easy to say we don't minimize our sin until we start looking at it and analyzing it. I've said this many, many times. I'll say it again. When was the last time we confessed our sins? If we truly are sin machines, when's the last time we confessed our sins? And I've said it many times. If it's true that we're sin machines, when was the last time that we grieved over our sin? 
I mean grieved. Deeply grieved over our sin. The Bible says always grieving, always rejoicing. Where's the grieving part? By the way, just like sin, our understanding of sin affects our understanding of, of um, the Gospel and our understanding of Jesus, in the same way, our grieving affects our rejoicing. Don't grieve much, you don't rejoice much. You really don't. You don't grieve much, so there's not much to rejoice over. Everything flatlines. I want to remind you, this is a people who seriously understood that Jesus was the, God, was the Messiah. And Jesus said, it's been hidden from them. It's been hidden. You'd think this is the time when Jesus should take it the next step and explain more to them. He doesn't. As a matter of fact, the very next thing he does is drive everybody crazy by doing what? Cleansing the temple. And he does other things that drive people crazy too. And then he finally says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and all of a sudden, everybody's gone. Isn't that what happens? It's exactly what happens. Except for a few. Jesus came, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Which demands that people understand how lost they really are. How hopeless they really are. Sin must not be minimized. It must be magnified. has to be. Can I just use an example of the problem? You look at the average gospel presentation. And it almost always starts with something along the lines of Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's a pretty insignificant Messiah. That's a pretty insignificant Messiah. And what, where did it start out? Where was the problem? Nothing magnifying sin. What did Peter do at the, at the, at the uh, day of Pentecost? Did he, did he get, come in front of the people and say, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Is that what he said? What did he do? The whole time, all he did is magnify sin. The whole time. It wasn't until he started crying out to be saved that he brought the truth of Jesus' forgiveness. Is that what happened? He just magnified it and magnified it and magnified it. Why did he do that? And it's not just him. Paul does the same thing. Why do they do that? Because if we screw it up on the evil of our sin and the grotesqueness of our sin and the complete inundation of sin in our lives, if we we screw that up, we will inevitably screw up the Gospel. And it will not be a Gospel. And when it's not a gospel, then there's no redemption. That's exactly what they did. They screwed up the whole evil part, the whole sin part. And so all they're doing is looking for what? A kingdom on this earth. My goodness, how many people are thinking about that? I mean, obviously we know in the church there's a vast swath of, of people who, uh, pastors who preach what's called name it, claim it theology. You know, you can, God wants you to be rich and healthy and on and on and on. And most conservative Christians, people who claim to be believers, would reject that because the Scriptures are pretty clear. At the same time, 
What are we hot after from Jesus? What do we find ourselves hot after? Things of heaven or things of this earth? What do you think? The things of this earth, aren't we? That's what happens in Christianity. The, the people who claim to be believers everywhere are just hot after, if I may say it, the kingdom of God on this earth today. Me, happy, comfortable, healthy, safe, and all the rest of that, right? And you know what Jesus says to people thinking that way right here? Because that's exactly what they're after, isn't it? And he says to them, you missed what it means when we talk about peace. Or to put it a different way, you missed what the things were that make for peace. You missed it completely. Peace is not about some sort of kingdom on this earth. It's not about being safe and healthy and comfortable and loved and, and on and on, on. It isn't. It's about a different kingdom. And that kingdom we're called to die. Aren't we? We're called to die. And I find it in conservative Christianity everywhere. We sound more like these people on the what's called triumphal entry Sunday. We sound a whole lot more like these people than we sound like the way the disciples looked, the apostles looked and lived from the day of Pentecost onward, don't we? You know what's amazing though, friends? Is the gospel is still there. Christ is on the throne. He is seated next to the right hand of God. And the call of the text, I would argue, is not what we typically think it is. The call of this text is to remember that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would take and fulfill His promises in you and in me. Either take us from death to life, justification, or take us to life to more life, sanctification. That He would, in grafting us into the vine, would cause us to have, with this new heart that He's given us, that He would cause us to have a love for Him that we've never had before. A longing for Him that we have never had before. The calling of this text is calling you and I once again. If He is out doing what? Seeking and saving the lost. Then shouldn't we, wouldn't we expect as believers, if we are believers, would we not expect that true believers would be seeking the things that Christ is seeking? Would we not? I'm not saying that this is a, this is a call we need to seek. Though. That's not what I'm saying. Would we not expect that if Christ came to seek and save the lost, would we not expect that those who once were lost and are now grafted into the vine would find themselves what? 
seeking and and, and reaching out to the lost so that they would be saved. Would that not make sense? Would you not expect that? Again, I'm not saying it's a command. We've got to do that. I'm saying, wouldn't you expect it? Wouldn't you expect also to add to that if Christ is seeking and saving the lost and then according to the Scriptures causing us who are now saved to be what? Become more and more like Christ. Would you not expect that would be what would be happening? Would we not expect that the things of this earth would start to grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace? Would you not expect that? If Christ is who He says He is? Wouldn't we? And yet strangely, we find that most times churches and people who claim to be Christians are a mere little teeny micro, microcosm of this story. They miss the whole point. They miss the point of salvation. They miss the point of Christianity. They miss the point of worship. And in crying out that Jesus is the Messiah, they miss that He's the Messiah. Friends, let it not be said of us that that is the case. Let it not be said of us that in in recognizing we miss. Seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Enjoy the true triumphal entry from the tree, from the rolled away tomb, rolled away stone at the tomb, and from His coming promised return. Those are the triumphal entries. We should expect that people who truly know Jesus will find their highest praise being the resurrected Lord and will find their highest longing would be the return of Jesus. And that all the other longings that they have are being evaluated by that. And that's what the Spirit does as He bears witness with our spirit. But do you recognize in the text that we can get really close and still miss the point? you recognize it? I'm reminded again, I've shared with you before, but I'm reminded again in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And we'll close on that the very last sentence in Pilgrim's Progress. After they've walked the whole path and they've arrived at the celestial city and Christian is standing there before the gate and there's somebody who's joined them. I can't remember what his name is right now, but there's someone who has joined him, his friend Hope. And this friend, this other guy doesn't have the certificate. He's made it the whole way but he doesn't have the certificate. And when the certificates are asked for, he and his friend give in their certificates, but this guy says, I don't have a certificate. And the gatekeeper says to him, I have another gate for you. And he walks 
him away from the entrance into the celestial city. And John Bunyan's last statement is, it was then that I realized there was a, a doorway to hell at the gates of heaven. And that's the end of the story. Make it all the way there. And in recognizing the truth and in knowing the truth, you missed it completely. I pray for us that our, our triumphal entry, that the triumphal entry to us will be an entry into Jesus as he truly is. And that that Jesus will be the satisfaction of our souls. Because that's who he's promised to be. So as we move toward the crucifixion, remembrance, Friday, and then the resurrection on Sunday, these next four or five days, what a great time to evaluate. Where am I? Have I missed it? Have I walked up to it and yet missed it? Am I looking to Jesus for all the wrong things? Let's pray. Lord, help us. Because the evidence of the Scriptures is very clear. <coughs> that there are many who will believe they're saved and it will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. There are many that are referenced in the Scriptures as having missed it completely. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to seek you. That your Spirit will be at work in us so that we have a longing that is a supernatural longing for our Redeemer. Lord, I pray that you will, by your Spirit, magnify sin in our lives. Please, don't allow us to minimize it. Because that minimizing of our sin will fatally destroy us. Your gospel is made glorious in our minds when sin is hideous. And all that is by your Spirit. Protect us from marginalizing Jesus, from compartmentalizing Him. We ask you to glorify yourself. In your name I pray. Amen.